Hey guys, it's Briars. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Meltthology. Meltthology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works. Show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9.30 p.m. we'll collect all of the art and $3 for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme, and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltthology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltthology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck, and that is at Melt underscore Thology. Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy. I am Matt Kennedy, and um, we have a very special guest for this particular episode. Um, good friend of mine, someone I've been trying to get on the show um, for quite a while, and uh, someone who is probably famous to some of you, I would imagine, Mr. Luke Chu. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And um, for those who don't know, uh, Luke Chu is a fine artist, um, a, a rather celebrated um, illustration guy. He's mm-hmm. um, got a two Fallout Boy album covers. No, just one. There's just a single one. though, too, right? If there is, I don't know about it. Oh, they didn't pay him. <laughs> but um, so, um, kind of that helps you reach a, a whole new demographic. Certainly. Yeah. Certainly. Now, but you've been doing this a while. Um, uh, about twelve years now. Yeah. You know, so that's, I guess, a while now. So when you first got involved with the graphic arts. Mm-hmm. What was your approach? You were a self-taught guy. Um, yes and no, right? Um, I am, you know, I went to school at Cal, in Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and I studied art and design there, mm-hmm. where I got a degree in graphic uh, design. And from, actually, I was hired out of, uh, while I was still in school, by a company called the Ernie Ball Company, where I did, like, advertising design and web 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 design and you know stuff like that and um and then you know but one thing that i heard while i uh from my professors while i was there was that you know as a designer you're okay but you know as an illustrator you are much better um and you should con- pursue you know the you know illustration thing and so when I finally kind of wore out my welcome in San Luis Obispo, I um, ended up moving two to weeks, two weeks into San Luis Obispo <laughs> and it was over. But uh, no, it, 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 I was there for actually, I, I ended up living in San Luis Obispo for about 14 years, I think. Holy cow. Yeah, that's a lot longer than I anticipated. Um, I um, or actually, no. Sorry, twelve years, mm-hmm. but um, I um, I moved to Los Angeles, you know, going through what my some of my friends fondly refer to as my quarter life crisis, mm-hmm. and uh, moved in uh, with my folks and you know to this city of millions and uh, with not really knowing what to do and fortunately I met the I ran uh, some people that I knew and they kind of you know introduced me to 
you know, like these cannibal flower art shows, which is they actually just celebrated their fifteenth, you know, anniversary. Elsie used to work um, in the gift shop in front of La Luz de Jesus. Yes, he did. He uh, recording. He actually learned a lot from, you know, working here, and you know, he and I kind of would, uh, you know, talk about, you know, what we had like learned, whether from you know my kind of design school background and his you know real life you know working at a at gallery or at La Luz and mm-hmm. you know kind of helped me come up with a lot of different you know ideas and understandings of how things went on in Los Angeles and um yeah I kind of worked my way up through the, these one month one, one night once a month kind of shows and eventually got enough work together to start up a website back when people looked at websites and you know remember those days <laughs> it went when websites sounded like this <laughs> yeah i remember that oh, oh that was oh this is more 2004 i think so that was oh, okay. a li- it was a little bit after a little that. bit after that okay not 95 not, or anything. not 95 no okay. 2004 but um you know, uh, and uh, got the attention of galleries and kind of, you know, started, you know, doing all this. But so to answer your question, I went to school for graphic design where I learned all my color theory and composition, composition and stuff like that. And then I, but, in, I, and, I, and while I was there, I think I took about three different, you know, illustration style classes one of them was a painting class and I took two life drawing classes Mm -hmm. and um it was in just those three classes where you know my professors kind of got the hint that like hey you know this guy is a better illustrator than he is a designer so we should kind of clue him in so we're gonna do um a really fat we're gonna do a, a fast comparison of then and now so the first piece that you had in a wall at cannibal flower was it a drawing or a painting it was a painting and how big was it? It was a 16 by 20. And how much did it sell for? Uh, I sold two of them, two 16 by 20s, mm-hmm. for what was an amazing amount for me at the time for $300. $300. Yeah. Now, you just had a show last December at Corey Helford. I had a show last year at Corey Helford, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And how big were the pieces? Uh, they ranged from 8 by 10 to... Um, five foot by six foot. And how much did those pieces sell for? Um, I can definitely say I, you know, gotten, you know, Los Angeles has been really good to me and, um, I, you know, kind of move a painting at that same size, 16 inch by 20 inch for about around six, six thousand, six thousand dollars. And this is all in the time frame of how many years? 12 years, 12 years. So that's. This should serve as great inspiration to anybody who has that kind of DIY spirit. Mm-hmm. But what's the first step? You gotta show. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta submit stuff. You gotta reach out to galleries and you gotta get your work on the wall. And you know, if you plug away and you get known for doing a specific thing, mm-hmm. then there's light at the end of the tunnel. Because I know you've also sold pieces for ten thousand dollars. You've sold yeah. pieces for twenty. Close, about fifteen. You know, is about where, you know where I've kind of come up on up to, but I'm you know still you know, still working on it. Yeah, you know? yeah. So there's things are still moving forward and yeah. still you know creeping you know up, and so I'm I'm yeah. But I also think that like you know one of the key 
things that I would always tell a young artist is like when you are new and you're showing for the first time price to sell you know I mean like you know we and because you know really at the end of the day it has it doesn't really matter too much like about how much you're selling it for what really matters is whether or not someone is willing to invest in you yeah and if you can be able to get that precious little red dot next to your piece that speaks volumes to everybody else who is you know walking around that gallery and you know looking at what you're doing because and and you know it's just uh uh it, it kind of sets your up your reputation and um you know like like i said i i was selling these what happened actually for me was i you know like most you know new you know artist you know wannabes i wanted to do i wanted to create my first painting to be a masterpiece mm -hmm. i wanted to be huge because that's what obviously you know you go to museums and you see gigantic paintings yep and it's like I got to make this thing as big as, you know, Jesus. As big as the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, it's going to, I'm going to like, you know, start things off with a bang. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, that, um, no one is going to, you know, and, and of course I want to sell it for about $15,000. And no know? one's got walls that big. <laughs> no one's got walls. And that galleries don't want to give that much space to someone without a track record. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, like I say, you, you want to place the work. So you want to make sure that, you know, you're placing the work, but you want to make sure that the people are enthusiastic about it. Mm -hmm. And the, the biggest kind of point of contention, I think, mm -hmm. um, for artists who don't have a lot of experience showing is that they start to do this mathematical equation in their heads of how long it took them to think of the piece right. and how long it took them to paint the piece and how much time they put into it and whether or not they put too much time into it never enters into their math of what they're going to sell it for. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to be your own biggest collector. Right. No, that yeah. you want to paint things and you want them to leave your space so that you can get on to the next idea and not have a rack or a row of 20 or 30 canvases stacked against the wall. As beautiful as they may be and as highly priced as maybe they deserve to be, they're better off in a collector's hands where it's going to go on a wall and every time someone that person has somebody over their house they're going to just hear about this great artist that they just discovered and they're going to say your name and then the people that go there are going to be part of this peer group that maybe start collecting you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that, you know, at least for me, one of the reasons why, like, I, I think it was easy for me to kind of let go of, you know, the paintings that I created is that I know that whoever is going to acquire you know, the piece is going to treat it so much better than I treat my own work. Yeah. This, this is the, the um, uncomfortable truth. You know, the inconvenient truth is that artists will grab the front of their paintings and they'll stick them over in the closet and they'll knock them over and they'll... They'll, they'll stack they'll them on their, top of each other. Yeah, they'll wheel their chair back into the corners. And um, the collector's going to treat it like a museum piece because it's their museum it's their home it's it's something that they they bought to enrich their life when people buy paintings they're buying paintings because it gives them this dream of a better life right and i think as long as anybody's in a position to be able to do that for somebody then yeah absolutely you want to make sure the work gets out there 
but there's also, you know, you've you you come to L.A. or you come back to L.A. No, I came to you LA. come to L.A. and you're you're getting the paintings around and you start to over time become like a regular guy on on the art scene. Like it's a your name that people talk about. And this this happens over a couple of years, yeah. maybe more than a couple. It takes and, a while. And then you start getting solo shows. Yes. And you start to really develop a reputation. Mm-hmm. And so at what point in your career did you come across the attention span of, I guess it must have been Pete Wentz? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it happened when... Um, I can't remember his name right off the top of my head, and I feel terrible because um, I should credit him for a lot of him, his help. But um, it was the uh, guy from Good Charlotte. Uh, gotcha, one of the brothers. Yeah, um, yeah, he was a huge collector of my work, and I actually had an episode of um, remember that show, Cribs. Cribs. Yeah, a lot of Daniel Martin Diaz on his walls that mm-hmm. he bought here, mm-hmm. and. One had, or two of your paintings, three? He actually had a room dedicated to my work. Jeez Louise. Yeah, and so he, um, you know, that I think really kind of helped get a lot of Benji. attention. Yes, yes. I, I couldn't think of his name either. That was embarrassing. I mean, uh, I've sold the guy a ton of work too. <laughs> so. I feel terrible because, you know, he's, you know, a really great guy. and you He's know. been a huge supporter of pop surrealism and lowbrow. Yes. I mean, he really has, and he, he has dedicated his house. It's sort of like... A, you know, a, a mansion of the type of work that started here and has become kind of the thing in the circle that we know. Yes. You know, a pop surrealism and lowbrow. I know. We're, you know, Luz de Jesus is, is one of the, you know, the epicenters of this entire illustrative contemporary art. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, lowbrow, whether you want to call it lowbrow or pop surrealism or whatever i'm i we call it post pop now i think is it post pop now yeah that, that's what we call it. we've been calling it post pop for 10 years so oh, i like who that. knows maybe they're oh. calling it um what's the latest um robert williams book the conceptual realism oh there it is there it is well nah i like yeah, post pop has a, a big umbrella to it <laughs> yeah it's a little yeah. bit yeah cuz like i i'm my work is neither well it's more it is conceptual but it's not realistic you know but anyways um, you know, so uh, and but, for people unfamiliar, mm-hmm. um, you work primarily with an animal character, right? Um, I, you know, my work is I, I, I kind of devised this theory, I guess, you could say around um, my work where I, you know, like as I was saying before, I'm not a classically trained painter or illustrator, um, but you know, I knew that I had. A talent for it mm-hmm. so um, when I started I found it was easiest for me to work with characters that you know were a little bit more anthropomorphized like animal kind of characters and rather than you know using actual human beings and human characters in my work and um, I kind of created a whole bunch of excuses for myself as to why it was a good reason to, to a good idea to do this. And like by using anthropomorphic, you know, characters, I kind of avoid the potential ageism, sexism, and racism that are tied in with you know actual human characters. Right. Um, so no one know. comes up to you and says, "Why don't you paint black bears?" Right. 
Yeah, exactly. And I could say, well, you know, white suggests purity, yada, yada. And, mm -hmm. you know, my work is, you know, constantly referring to, has deals with a lot of innocence lost kind of narratives and yada, yada. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that... And um, you're Asian. And I am Asian. Yes. I am Chinese. And, um, you know, so, you know, it's, I think that, like, you know, I also, you know, I'm a big fan of... You know, before I moved to Los Angeles and before I even, you know, considered the idea of, you know, pursuing a, a career as an as a studio artist, I ran across, you know, the the work of Yoshitomo Nara and, you know, um, me. Uh, I was about to say Hayao Miyazaki, but of course I love Hayao Miyazaki as well. But Murakami. I do the same thing every single time <laughs> I try and think of his name. We just bought pieces from Blum and Poe from the, the show that he curated. Mm -hmm. And I, I could actually afford them, and that made me feel like a grown-up, and that was wonderful. Nice. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. That's awesome. But, yeah, I mean, he's, you know, um, Murakami, like, I, I just, you know, I, I credit a lot of, you know, I credit those guys for helping kind of bring this cartoon aesthetic into a, a contemporary art atmosphere. Um, of course, I'm, you know, that's, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of other artists that have, you know, done at that and then some, you know, in, you know, America or in the West. But being that I am Asian, I, mm -hmm. of course, you know, gravitate to other Asian artists. Well, to let, a certain let me degree. ask you this too, because, um, this is always kind of stuck in my craw, and I'm, I'm certainly not here to make any enemies, but that I've always been surprised at the fame of Cause, hmm. who is not Japanese, mm -mm. who has um, seriously um, kind of, I mean, assimilated, taken, stolen, mm -hmm. however you want to say, a lot from those toy makers at Metacom. Right and stuff and I mean now you do art toys and you do mm -hmm. art toys of your toy and they fit within that complete relationship of that of that aesthetic sure as do causes yes but causes toys tend to be about a hundred thousand dollars and I guess maybe that's the only reason why people care is that when 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 you throw what seems like an inordinately high number on something people develop moral outrage about things that they normally wouldn't give a toss about. Right. You know, right. like if a Picasso sells for $135 million, then someone in middle America gets to scratch the head and say that it looks like nothing and then it doesn't, you know, reflect their value system or something. Sure. And and I'm not I'm not bagging on them necessarily, mm -hmm. but that I do think that the reason that that attitude exists are, are, are twofold. Number one, that there was never enough education about abstract and then later abstract expressionism and now contemporary art right. for the layperson to actually feel like there's something more to it than what's on the brushstroke. Mm -hmm. And two, that um, that there has been a lot of attention given to the highest end of the blue chip market and the money that it's being made to the point that street art is now being seen as another way out of poverty. Right. You know, right. it's it the was, new basketball. It's the new basketball, exactly. And this is a very, very important thing. And I mean, you are, are sort of been for a long time kind of classified with street artists. Have but I? that's oh. not what you do. No, it's uh, definitely not what I do. I mean, um, you know, it was interesting. I actually participated in a event uh, 
in October. It was for Interstate Gallery in Detroit, you know, put together an event called uh, Murals in the Market. Mm -hmm. And it's like this area in Detroit called the Market, I guess. And Mm -hmm. it's, uh, they had uh, about 40 some artists come out and, you know, paint up, you know, murals on the the market. Mm -hmm. And um, it was the first time I actually ever really handled a can with the intent of creating an actual painting. Um, can of course mean aerosol can, um, and not uh, just to write swear words on a wall. Right, exactly. exactly. Which is um, we've all done that. How can you not? Right. <laughs> but um, and um, what was the? I thought the 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 best thing about it was just kind of you know looking, paying attention just a little bit. You know, I have my phone set so that whenever people add me, like you know, I get a little you know message you know on my yeah. phone and for some if it just felt like well i was doing out doing that event and you know posting a little bit here and there my phone my my account just blew up yeah you know and which um i i thought was kind of you know odd and but anyways going back to street art i mean like cause was never a street artist either never never you know the um i mean of course people are going to probably refer to his um bus uh stop advertisements but mm-hmm. uh you know thing murals or whatever but the truth of those pieces is that they were never really permanently there from right. my understanding they were he had the key he opened it up he put his piece in there he closed it up stepped back a couple of feet took a photograph of it took it opened the case up took the painting back out and closed the door and wow that that's a real cheat yeah that's uh that's called you know playing the market you know and, and that's kind of a thing like um and we we did a whole show on on street art and i think that um and on the history of it and how it developed from trains out of um, Providence, Rhode Island, into subway cars in, in New, York New York City, mm-hmm. and how it spread across the country. But that um, when I think of street art, and I think when most people think of street art, they think of graffiti artists. Absolutely. And that um, that now it's, well, if you're an aerosol artist, you can certainly be a street artist, and you can also be a fine artist. Mm-hmm. But once you do a piece specifically for a gallery... It is inherently not street art, regardless of what you're known for. And so if you look at someone like Risk and Nathan Oda, you know, who was doing the coups tag, you know, back in the 80s, back when you could get killed, you know, painting under bridges, you know, and and places out in Venice when it was like Gang Central, that it wasn't just like a tag reward that, you know, doing graffiti and getting your name up on a wall was a life-threatening venture back in those days. There's a huge difference between that and wheat pasting a bus stop in a good neighborhood two weeks before your show in Beverly Hills. <laughs> and there's a lot of that. And a lot of those guys kind of get that credit. And, I'm, you know, I'm not going to I'm not gonna name names. There's a few people that we know, sure. you know, that certainly are classified perhaps as street artists that have about as much street cred as Mr. Rogers and um, or Sesame Street cred. Mm-hmm. But that they've been able to develop a career out of that and they've, and they've turned that into something else. And some of them do toys as well. And, and some of them um, have even gotten museum shows. But the... Um, when you transitioned to toys, it seemed like a real natural thing, and I think it was something that people really, really wanted. Well, you know, um, when I first started uh, painting in Los Angeles, I, um, you know, kind of did a lot of research for um, on the internet and ran across websites like Kid Robot, mm-hmm. and at the time, 
in the early 2000s, the um, the Kid Robot website felt more like almost like a museum. Yeah. It you know archived a lot of amazing designer toys, a lot of the stuff that was coming out of Hong Kong at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, because this is before the Dunny. This is before yeah. you know all that. You know, before Kozik started doing his own thing. Yeah, before Kozik kind of uh, came, you know, well, I mean, Ko- I think I was when I started. Kozik had. I, I've got. I mean, I've got stories of. Um, uh, I've a, a, sto- a friend Kozik story, kind of, but um, you know, but you know, I think at the look um, at that. I know. Uh, was this, uh, <laughs> I, I saw, and actually, I went. I remember going to that sh- this specific show. Yeah. And uh, the Smork and Rabbit. Yep, yeah. Yep. And you know, he had the. Uh, I think he did a piece with. Uh, was it Metacom as well? Um, yeah. The um the original Smorking Rabbits. Yeah. They, yeah. they talked to him. Like the Metacom guys started really reaching out and saying, "Hey, do you want to do a Metacom toy with us?" Mm-hmm. And people were like, "Sure, but what what would I do?" You know, and I think Frank tells a story about it. He's like, oh, well, you know, I'll draw this thing. And it's like, well, that could be a toy. Mm. And then he was like, well, why am I doing toys with somebody else? I could make my own toys. Right. And he's he's kind of of that ilk, you know, and he's he's an Austin, Austin, Texas DIY kind of guy. And he right. was doing the you know, help bring back the rock posters. Mm-hmm. We certainly, the first Frank Kozik show that we did when I was working on Melrose for La Luz de Zeus back in like 91, 92, mm-hmm. um, was of his poster art. So when he Have transitioned. It. Have you been working for La Luz de Jesus that long? I started in 1991 on Melrose, um, worked through the transition from there over here, and then went into the entertainment business. And then I came back in 2009, but I'm part of that original wave. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm impressed. <laughs> I don't know if I, I impressed had, is the right word. <laughs> no, but. no, I, I'm impressed because it's, you, you've witnessed so much. Yeah. I've been lucky this. that way. I mean, I'm, I've, I was telling um, Kevin Smith that um, I'm kind of like this Forrest Gump, I feel like. <laughs> I've I'm just kind of been at these pivotal events in pop culture yes. where, you know, I, I came out here, I, I, I sold my comic book collection to Fantastic Store, I met Gaston, mm-hmm. and ended up doing the comic book wall for True Romance. You know, I set designed that entire comic book shop oh, no way. for that movie. And um, then ended up working in nightclubs, and I worked at... Um, you know, Club 1970s, and then a Control Factory, and a Helter Skelter, and I worked at the Cat House, you know, and I ended up doing radio with Ricky Rackman years later, you oh know, as, as Flickhead, and, you know, I, I working at the gallery. I used to go to, by the way, I used to go to Control Factory when yeah. I, because um, I was Dude. a huge industrial, oh my God, <laughs> I'm, wearing the, I'm wearing the jacket, yeah. I, I used to be a total, like, you know industrial head you know so. so I was I was bar back and most of the time I bartended sometimes with Kelly mm-hmm. who was like the really good looking male bartender and so there'd be like a line of girls at the bar waiting to talk to him and then there'd be a line <laughs> of guys trying to get with the girls that so they couldn't all get with him, you know, and, and actually, he, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't, you know, major player. So he was just like this good looking guy. So he was a draw, but, um, you know, and that's been kind of like my whole existence out here. And I feel really blessed that I've, I've been able to be around these things and maybe I've got a, a better divining rod about pop culture than most. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we've had conversations before and I've always been very impressed by, you know, I mean, it's obviously you didn't destroy, you know, a big chunk of your brain like I did, you know? <laughs> well, you just don't know. You just don't know. Not the same way, we'll say. Uh, Not know, in the same way. But, you know, you, you're the, the kind of information that you've um, accrued, collected, and um, have, has helped you kind of 
make sense of what's going on is, is always very impressive you know to me well, we're going to take a quick um, break for our sponsors and um, we come back I'm going to dig into that a little bit I think there's something really interesting there and I promise it's not going to become a Barbara Walters moment but um, I'm not going to make you cry but um, you listen up sponsors this can be your demographic so uh, get a hold of us and, and uh, maybe you can join the people we're going to hear from in just a few moments Melt you the school at Meltdown, where they teach you the skills to make comic books. Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now. Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm Matt Kennedy. I have with me here today a good friend and a great painter, um, Luke Chu. Hello. And yeah. um, right before the, the commercial break, um, we were talking about something, and, and you mentioned, so I'm going to dig into it a little bit, and you, like, you talked about killing some brain cells. Yes. Now, um, very much a part of your work and in, in the character that you've developed with the bears, is are there's a lot of conversations about addiction in there. Yes, yes. And this is obviously a very autobiographical thing. Yeah, no, it is. Um, and you've been open about it, so it's not a, it's not yeah. a secret. I, I, you know... I like to be open about it because I feel that when people become familiar with that about me, it kind of helps people realize even more that like, you know, the, the ideas that are coming through in the work are not accidental. Right. You know, they are sincere and, um, you know, I've, um, I've been sober now for about a little more than five years, so um, which of course suggests that you know there was a big chunk of that time while I was painting when I was kind of you know I was pretty much deep in my addiction, and um, I mentioned earlier that I had worn out my welcome in San Luis Obispo, in which case I literally wore out my welcome in San Luis Obispo because it all started there. Yeah, and um, I was addicted to painkillers and, um, you know, opioid kind of, uh, you know, drugs. And um, I moved to from San Luis Obispo to Los Angeles uh, to escape that. And I, for, you know, the first year and a half or so while I was here, I was able to you know, get away from all of that and actually in that year and a half start up a, what would eventually be my career as a, an artist. But, uh, what also happened was, you know, I mean, like if anyone's familiar with San Luis Obispo, it's a small town beach community. And so, you know, it's kind of funny that, you know, or ironic that, uh, you know, anyone would, you know, become, an addict to addicted to hard, hardcore drugs in a like a small community like that, but what happens is because you're so used to you know that lifestyle in the small town where it's like there's only a small network of people and you know you only know how to cop you know through that very small tight network. When you move to a large city like this, you just get lost in it. You have no idea how things work here mm -hmm. and that's the reason why I was able to you know like maintain um, my sobriety at that time uh, but ironically because of 
you know, my, uh, the, the painting thing. And it all actually happened during the debut, the inauguration of Gallery Row in downtown um, Los Angeles, which happens to uh, be right next to Skid Row. Yeah. And um, while I was out there, I I suddenly was able to put two and two together and figure out like, oh, there's this. There's a cop zone right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a gigantic open air drug market, and. Um, I inevitably kind of fell back into all of that. And, um, you know, the thing about, uh, the thing that I realized <clears throat> for me was that that kind of lifestyle, like, you know, obviously, like, you know, I, I grew up, I'm a child of, you know, the 80s and 90s. And so I grew up, you know, with this idea that, like, you know, if you want to be an artist, you do drugs, you know. It's the way a lot of musicians that I grew up with in, in the 70s and 80s felt that it was like, hey, all my heroes did drugs. And it's like, yeah, and all your heroes died. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I and I kind of, I romanticize the idea of drugs yeah. a lot. In my, I think in people my do that. I think it's a, one of the, the major, what's the most attractive thing about it is that you feel like it gives you an ability that you don't have. And a lot of times that ability is to forget something bad right. or it's the ability to dream something better. And I think that the big danger is that there's a lot more of the, of the former and a lot less of the latter. Right. Well, you know, I, the thing I noticed with me was that, uh, you know, I, I had a, a pretty ugly habit. And um, rather than take risks with my work, I started playing it safer and safer, you know, because I had to make enough money to maintain my habit. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think back when I look back at it now, I think I would have, my work would have evolved so much faster if I wasn't, you know, caught up in that lifestyle. Yeah. And, um, I'm beginning to kind of change things up a little bit in my work, but I, there was a long streak where most, you know, artists, you know, artists have a tendency of wanting to destroy the things that, you know, you know people kind of recognize them for yeah. like, Oh, you're you know, the guy who does this. Well, but they're also as superstitious as baseball players. <laughs> and so they have this, this want to, to destroy what they're famous for. Mm-hmm. The second they step too far outside the box, they go right back to what what it was that they felt was safe. Sometimes to the detriment, and sometimes to the benefit. But right. um, I totally get what you're saying. Well, you know, I've you'll you'll find a lot of paintings that I've done over the years that are of me and just how tired I am mm-hmm. of doing the work that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I, I I thought that it you know and I and. I still have, uh, you know, I love the, the the characters that I've you know developed, and I am happy to have been able to create something that is, you know, undeniably me, mm-hmm. you know. But I, you know, like before we started recording this, I was walking around um, Waluz and um, going through some books and looking at the the shows that are up, and I was like, you know. I really, I, I really want to change things up. I really want to kind of see where, I, you know, I, I really want to push the doors open and, you know, go through, try, try something completely different. But at the same time, 
I also know that it's important to when you do change to it's important to make your audience feel like that they are evolving with you yeah you want to make sure that that your your audience grows with you and that you don't grow in the face of the people that supported you Mm -hmm. and um and that's that's a really hard balance to walk absolutely Absolutely. and I've, i've seen many people um, have problems with that, but I'll also say this, and this is really important because I don't know if you're aware of this. So um, I get offered for resale all kinds of work, you know, all the time, and a lot of times it's it's not always people that we've shown; it's people that are big in the scene. I've never had anybody offer me one of your pieces back for resale. Seriously, never. Like, and you're one of the people that I, I can sell it. You know, it's like there are people that ask me. It's like, oh, can can you, is anybody you know got any Luke Chu? And I'm like. I never see it hit the market again. So the people that are buying it love it, and that's a really you don't always know that. Yeah, no, I, you know, I don't pay attention at all to who's buying my work. I'm afraid that it might get to my head. Right. Um, and I don't, you know, I I know a lot of artists out there have an issue with the fifty percent. Mm-hmm. And when I'm talking about the 50%, I'm talking about the fact that galleries take 50% of the sale. But the thing that I truly, truly believe, especially, and it makes even more sense now that we live in this day of, you know, of the internet where we're seeing work on screens, and that is to actually see the work in person. Like, you have an artist up right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that, Robert Craig. Yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah, that was super photorealistic. Mm-hmm. You can't see the technique; it's super flat. Mm-hmm. People come in and they lose their minds. They just they can't believe it's painted. And it's what's it's it's what's funny is that like there's I mean like I this might sound kind of critical, but like some of it looks like a bad Photoshop job to an extent, to a certain degree, and right. it so it looks like it's. It looks digital, digital. Yeah. and it's not digital, and that's what's mind-blowing about it is that his eye is so specific to this weird type of reality mm-hmm. that the first time I saw it, and you're talking like 10, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. that he sent in these small, like, wrapped canvases around, like, you know, the stretchers, like, six-inch or ten-inch pieces, and I said to Billy, I was like, oh, um, what's this terrible Photoshop print? And he's like, turn it around, and I turned it around, you could see the paint. And I and I, I was like, oh my god! He's like, yeah. It's like this dude doesn't own a computer. Yeah, I I'm very impressed. I like the fact that you guys like hung it without I the had bars. Yeah. I had to hang it without it being on stretchers. I had to hang it without it being framed because you have to see every part of that canvas to really understand yeah. that it's painted. That this guy did this. But anyways, what I was wanted to say is that people need to experience art in person. Yeah, they really do, and. When you know, I think you know, I, I, my work seems to translate pretty well to digital, but all the nuance is missing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, you are not going to see a lot of the texture and the technique or whatever you know that I put into mm-hmm. my work, um, you know, through a screen. And I ideally would, I would love my the people who want to see my work experienced in person rather than through a screen. Right. And if that means giving half of the money to the gallery, 
then you know that's just a that's a small price to pay. Also, the fact of the matter is is that like you know I went from one hundred and fifty dollars a canvas to seven thousand six thousand seven thousand for that same canvas size canvas. And the thing is is that I could never have done that on, on my own. Yeah. Well, I, I always say it like this. That a gallery may take 50%, they never get to keep it. You know, that all those costs that don't fall on you, yep. fall on them. So as as an artist who's who's doing the standard split, which is 50-50, that um, you're not paying for the electricity, you're not paying for the rental of the facility, you're not paying for the employees to be there, you're not paying for the invitations that go out, you're not paying the post office for the postage for those invitations, you're not paying to accrue a list over years, you're not paying for 20 years of reputation, Absolutely. in our case, 30 years. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, the, a lot um, of young people don't understand that. No, they uh, and I, I actually, I've, I've had friends who, you know, kind of like you know, I, a, a friend of mine whom I, whose name I don't need to mention, but you know, he had an experience where you know he basically you know, you know, showed his work up to his mailing list, and his entire mailing list swooped in and, and bought the work, and okay, yeah, that's great, you know. Um, you know, and he felt really jilted because he had to give fifty percent of it to the gallery too. Um, to but then there's some... that that unquantifiable thing. It's like if it wasn't in a gallery, was it that worth? Was it worth that much? Right. Which and then you also have an established price point, which is important in building a career. Because if you do go to auction, what's the what's the first thing the auction house is going to do? Mm-hmm. They're going to go back and try and find the history of your pricing. Right. And if you have a gallery, there is a history of pricing. Right. So I mean, and I mean, it may sound like you know that. Um, if I sound invested in it, obviously I am. I do run a gallery, mm-hmm. but that I've also been on the other side of that, and I have sold artwork, and I have sold artwork through galleries. That um, I understand the model, and I understand why it's important. So, um, yeah, and, and thank you for being the guy that raised it. You know, it's it's it sounded a little <laughs> it sounded a little mercenary if I was the guy talking about it. No, well, I mean, I I I truly believe that, and you know, I mean, like you know, that's another thing about you know galleries is that like there is this unspoken hierarchy in galleries too yeah. um and you know we i think as um, artists who show in galleries our goal is to get into the next tier yeah per se and because by getting to that next tier it's all it can also be a you know um, an ele- elevation in your lifestyle lifestyle and pricing and everything yeah. so your freedom your materials yes and so you know that's uh, the, that's the another game to play yeah you know? um, I can I can definitely say that like you know I've got you know I've tried to maintain good relationships with every single gallery that I've worked with and the reason why I do that is simply to it's, I mean it's it's to cover my own ass, but it's also because, I mean, like, let's like say, you know, there's some competing galleries that you know we all know. Like, mm-hmm. I'll I'll say like ThinkSpace, right? Like mm-hmm. ThinkSpace, like those guys have very very humble beginnings, mm-hmm. you know. But and the but the way they have been pushing and hustling and you know collaborating with other galleries around the world and museums and whatnot like they have moved up very very fast and if i had burned that bridge with thinkspace you know after i you know worked with them you know back in the day you know i would be missing out in a lot of 
potentially good opportunities, right. you know, that, you know, because you don't know where these galleries and who these people, where these people are going to be, right. you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the line. For sure. You know, so. And there's social media geniuses. Uh, Ken Harmon, too, you know, yes, who um, runs Hashimoto mm-hmm. and um, Spoke Art. Spoke Art up in San Francisco is a guy that started really recently. Um, he had been a camera guy for High Fructose Magazine, yep. shooting their uh, online stuff, and decided pretty quickly that he wanted to run yep. a gallery, and he just went headlong into it. Yeah. And um, and I got to give that guy some props. You know, he's he knows what he's doing, and his focus is pretty specific. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's going to carry him through. That um, and I also think, it, it, and it depends what you're paying for rent and what neighborhoods you're in. And all this stuff becomes a factor, as you know. Yeah. You know, and um, you know, we had a second space. We had um, our quote unquote you know, white cube kind of gallery, mm-hmm. Billy Shire Fine Arts on Washington Boulevard for five years. And we were the first gallery yeah. over in that neighborhood before it became Gallery Row. Yes. But when it did become Gallery Row, we were on the opposite side of La Cienica. Mm. And so that kind of hurt us a little bit. Were you? Yeah, yeah we, yeah, we yeah, were yeah. right at Fairfax. Right, 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 right. Mm-hmm. Now, now we're, we're getting regional again. But, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, but the, I mean, the truth of it is that those are really important factors. And there is that, that hierarchy. And it is important that you're going in a specific direction. And, and something that I, I do when I coach younger artists is I say, hey, you know, if my, my goal is that if, if you came in through me, that in five or six years, I can't show you anymore. Right. You know that you're gonna be, you're gonna go up the ladder. You're gonna go to the next place, and I'd love it if you can put a small piece every once in a while on a group show. But I want you to get to a place where I can't handle you anymore. I want to bring you to a place where you're you're gonna hit a a, a price ceiling that this particular space can't withstand. Well, it's not. It's definitely not in the gallery's interest to hold their artists down. I mean, like you but know, but some do. Yeah, some do. And but it's also not in in an artist's interest to be cavalier about how they go through that system too that um if, if you do it gracefully you, you can it's going to be better for everybody right well yeah and we, we and i think we both know artists that have definitely you know really kind of you know messed things up you know for themselves to yeah. a certain degree because of um you know just uh you know they're too concerned about like you know who they're working with you know and get a little popular and next thing you know they're you know they agree to do one show a show at one space and you know kind of smash it out and ignore it you know to yeah. do the move the show to another space and i get it yeah but you know the thing is is that that next gallery that gallery that wants you they'll wait yeah the, you know, so like, you know, do, you know, follow, finish your, fulfill your obligations. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because, you know, I mean, like, you know, I, you know, like we were saying, you know, earlier, I mean, like I've, I have complete faith in that, that, you know, a person like you can, will, you know, in the future, in, in the future, way in the future, or even in the near future, will have, be able to have, will have an impact on what's going on. You know, in, for artists in, especially in Southern California, yeah. you know, because you know that's. Well, thank you. Yeah, you know, it's, you're, you know, when you when you when you when the hustle comes naturally, you yeah. know, then you know. <laughs> Sometimes the lin comes out, the lin mass comes out. But the um, we'll also talk to um, it, we've known each other for quite a while, and um, and I've I've also seen your art change over time, and that it's become 
more apparent as I've gotten to know you better that you you have an art language that you have a a specific way of looking at things that that the work may seem simple it's not there's a lot of complex stuff to it and I think that that's the best compliment you can give to work is to say hey you know it's like there's something simple and there's something really attractive about this and that when things get too complicated and they get bogged down in um, in too much other and too much concern about other things that it's it's harder to isolate where the artist begins and where this other thing of the art world starts to enter but we've always talked about curating a show together yes we have and I'll let you tell everybody what the title of that show is going to be well um, Matt your your wife is um, in Japanese, Japanese girl yes <laughs> no. and um, you know I'm you know Chinese and um, you know we've you know we know that you know we've talked about you know kind of bringing our love of Asian culture yes Asian American culture yes specifically you know, and uh, into a, a show and you know we finally referred to it as the Yellow Fever show yes <laughs> and uh, I think that like you know it, it's definitely something you know I am would, I'm still gung-ho about like yeah. making happen because you know there, especially in Southern California there are a, an, an abundant it's just amazing Amazing list of artists of Asian American artists: James yep. Jean, David Cho. Yep. You know, um, like you know, Christine Wu just had a show recently, but yep. she's out on the East Coast. Um, so but grew up out here. Yep. But she she is definitely. I mean, yeah. she. Yeah, Ando, who's up in in mm-hmm. San Francisco, who's you know a Sundrum Tagore gallery mm-hmm. girl, fine art, you know, hitting that next that next level. I mean, there, there's so many extremely talented Asian Americans, and. Um, our idea was to do a kind of biennial where, mm-hmm. you know, every two years we showcase, you know, and and bring together this amazing group and show all different aspects of the different practices. You've got people yeah. who work in very different mediums. So that's always been very attractive. And, and, and the show being kind of a... Um, a euphemistic title <laughs> against me, I guess, really. Um, but that, um, you know, that, that, that there's real love there and that it's not, you know, there's, it's just a really great appreciation. And one thing I've been most proud of um, since I've come back um, to run the lose after being a guy who worked um, as a, the gallery manager in the early nineties and coming back and being the director is that we've really expanded the, um, the roster um, into different ethnicities mm-hmm. that um, for a while it was, we certainly had and have always had a very um, a long relationship with Latino artists mm-hmm. and um, there's always a lot of, you know, male Caucasians and this gallery did show a lot of women. Um, some of the first women who pioneered in pop surrealism. But I think that if you look at my programming, there's probably more women in the programming than there are men. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it, this is not a gallery that has a really strong, like white Caucasian male presence. Oh, it, oh, I, this show uh, accepted. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> right. The show that's up right now is two white guys. And when we we programmed um, Robert Craig, I programmed Mark Leeson with him because Mark Leeson is so painterly mm-hmm. that you've got in one room a guy where you can't see the stroke, and in the front you've got a guy where it's it's all technique, it's all mannerism painting. Right. You, know, you talk about wandering around and thinking like, oh, you know, there's there's a lot of ideas here. That um, you know, I think what's what's great about what you do is that that's also eminently applicable like what you do can become a lot of products that aren't just products and that they can also become 
really amazing art objects and of course you have so when you've you've become like kind of a, a central figure in the art toy world now yeah um i'm you know been working with uh, a company uh, monkey king who are based in um southern california yeah and um you know we you know he my friend patrick you know he started off actually doing you know directing uh film and worked a lot in Asia. And while he was out there, he discovered, you know, like all the Michael Lau and Keys and all these other, like, you know, really, you know, interesting art toy things, products that were being produced out there. And he basically, when he moved back to um, Los Angeles, he, I think he was having maybe uh, things were going slow in the uh, uh, film uh, department or a film thing and so he decided to take the space that he was using to produce you know his uh, film projects and decided to open up a retail space which became Monkey King and actually I have, there's a little story about you know when I how he and I met and it was a Sunday afternoon um, and I was there with some of my friends like Joe Ledbetter and Thomas Hahn and we were like digging and I was looking at the keys and I was, you know, really wanting to get this Gaelic key, which was like the chase key. Mm-hmm. Keys are these little bears that are designed to Spelled kind of with a Q. Q, Q, yep. E, E, I believe. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, they hang off of uh, your keychain if you want it to, uh, or you could just kind of arrange them as figures, you know. And um, I, w- I found a way to kind of bend the box a little bit so I could be able to peek into the flap. And figure out what you know key was because they were all blind boxed, and he kind of caught me like you know molesting his packet toy packaging yeah. <laughs> and um I you know and but I introduced myself and, and you now know, he polybags them in the box. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, you know they yeah nowadays they not only are yeah they're totally like there's no way you could be able to see them even if yeah. you do like peek through the box which is. I'm just glad I, I'm not caught up in that blind box kind of thing anymore. Obsession. Oh, it's, yeah. It's terrible. It's a, it's a really ugly, ugly, you know, addiction. But, um, anyways, um, but so, you know, he, uh, we, he saw my work and, you know, my work, you know, is very, it's very character driven and it's, you know, very narrative and, I think well, that's one of the things that kind of separates, you know, what I do from a lot of the other, because uh, especially when I was starting, there was a lot of very character-based work coming out. Yeah. You know, um, and um, I think the thing that kind of helped, you know, gave me a little bit more leverage was the narrative. This kind of twist, that narrative twist that I would throw into the work to give the character a little bit more depth mm-hmm. and um because you know anyone can you know draw a bear with a forlorn expression on it but it's about like you know kind of giving it um a little more like a little story to it to kind of help you know people empathize with and it not know. just being one emotion so i mean it would have been very easy to do grimy bear Right, right, like yeah, yeah, like um, exactly. Like I was, a, I was a huge Lumiere fan. I was a huge fan of a lot of the toys that were coming out you know, at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let me think. What were some of the other ones? There was, um, yeah, I, well, I don't know. I can't think of too many. But like, you know, I think that. But you know, the um, 
I think, where was I going with all this? Um, <laughs> well, the, the, what yeah. separates the work is that there's a narrative aspect to it. Right. And basically what we wanted to do with our toys was incorporate, like just recreate the painting, yeah. but into a three-dimensional format. And one of the first pieces that we did was a painting I did called Possessed. And basically um, what it was was a um, a bear um, can't, who was looking down at his hands, and his hands were covered in blood. But meanwhile, floating behind him is a little devil, and the devil is holding an Atari 2600-style controller, which is then in turn plugged into the back of his head. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, there's a lot of different little things going on there. There's like a gamer thing going mm-hmm. on. There's like, you know, this entire like good versus evil devil thing, you know, and then, um, you know, there's the blood on the hands. And, you know, I, you know, the blood in the hands thing was actually kind of um, accredited to, you know, the fact that, you know, the kind of life that I was leaving, living, I w- often woke up with a lot of grime on my, underneath my fingernails because of, you know, just, that's what comes along when you do hardcore drugs, Yeah, you know, so. And I love when, when Jason Freeney um, collaborated on one of your figures and did his kind of exoskeleton type of thing that the bear's a cutter. (laughs) You know, which is kind of like a a really interesting thing. And, of course, that kind of ties it. What I think was great about the fact, and and there's – because your artwork was used for Fall Out Boy album cover. Mm -hmm. And Fall Out Boy have been accused of being an emo band, and and to an extent perhaps they are. But that that fits in a way – like that there's an emo aspect, but it's a relatable emo aspect that has a whole lot more personality and history behind it than um, than most other things do. Right. And so that the narrative nature of what you're bringing into these – and they're one illustration. Mm-hmm. So you really do have to have the picture that, that, that speaks a thousand words when you have a painting on a wall mm-hmm. and that people are going to bring their own narrative – to the narrative that you've created for it and by allowing that many different myriad possibilities you're opening up the appeal of that particular piece with every piece well you know one of the things that uh, about my work that i kind of you know i i put i have considered this a lot as well as you know when before i moved to los angeles i was working for the ernie ball company doing advertising design mm-hmm. And one guitar of, string company. Yes, and they guitar manufacturer. Guitar and guitar strings. And one of the things that um, Sterling Ball, the uh, president of the company, had hammered into me was this idea that basically you have like 2.3 seconds to sell your idea to a passive audience. Mm-hmm. And um, so I did a lot of advertising designs that were just like you know one catchy phrase you know and the ernie ball logo and uh like or and some kind of you know very clean clear kind of photograph you know um that was kind of the formula that i you know devised for their advertising but when i came moved here and started working i think i incorporated a lot of that kind of quote unquote quick read kind of um mentality to you know, my work, it's in my work. And I think that, um, but at the same time, like, you know, I mean, I don't know whether or not, like, I mean, obviously when I create the work, I don't have every single, you know, narrative possibility 
in my head when I'm, I'm creating it. You know, I only have like, I work a lot of idioms and I work a lot off of, um, you know, just little subtle pop cultural references and stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I still can't even really tell you how a lot of these ideas, you know, manif- you know, kind of come to me, but you know, I'm, I'm lucky that they do. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, basically I try and create, you know, work that, you know, as you're just kind of going through the gallery, you can kind of pick up on pretty quick. And, you know, I think another part of it has to the fact has to do with the fact that, you know, I mean, when I first moved here and, you know, I say I see the work of like Todd Shore, Mark Ryden, um, super technical slick painters yeah with these super elaborate you know um backgrounds and there was just no way in hell i could be able to do that Mm -hmm. i i just didn't have the talent at that time to do it Mm -hmm. nor did i have the patience right and um so i just kind of found a voice that suited what i was doing you know that and you know and it worked out. No, I always tell young artists that, you know, the kind of work that I think you should be create they should be creating is the kind of artwork that they would be really excited to see if they went to a gallery. And um I whenever I see, you know, kind of some work some really clever kind of narrative work with anthropomorphized characters, I can't help but like feel giddy. <laughs> about it like not because i feel like they owe me something but it's just it's, i love that kind of imagery yeah. it you know it really like you know gets me excited and um i um you know i actually you know when i first moved to los angeles i didn't even really care for the work of like todd shore or mark Ryden just because i felt it was so illustrative at the time but now i mean i love those guys like you know i you know i buy every book that you know they come out with you know and porterhouse uh, press is making some money off of luke Chin. oh yes they are because i'm i'm a sucker for the limited edition not the super limited edition because you know there's like yeah, three the trade limited <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but um you know the um the that yeah you know, and i i think the artist that i i identified most with most when I first moved here was probably Camille Rose Garcia. Mm-hmm. Um, I still love her artwork. And I mean, I mean, someday I'll have her on. We'll talk about her career in animation because she was a legend in animation. Oh, really? As, as someone who was fast and efficient and ran a lot of projects that people worked on. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. You talk to Sean Stepanoff who works here about working with, with Camille. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you know, actually, that's one of the things that I I remember. I don't know whether or not it so happens so much nowadays, but when I first came here, a lot of the artists that were showing all came from animation. Yeah, like Tim Biscop, I know was and uh, Sana Hung, yep. and like all of those guys were um, animation uh, graduates of sorts. And yeah. Mark Bodnar, all those cats. Yeah, oh. there's a whole group of people that came out from Ohio. You know that helped. I mean, they're doing everything. It's kind of crazy. Mm. But um, 
I think this has been amazing. I'm gonna have you shout out some um, some websites for us. Where yeah. where can people find Luke Chu online? Sure. Well, um, to see all of my older work that is from 2003 until 2011, you could go to my website, and that's um, uh, LukeChu.com. Spell and it. Spell it. Spell that, it. Oh uh, yes, it's spelled L-U-K-E-C-H-U-E-H dot C-O-M. <laughs> you know, <laughs> in case you didn't know, right, right. <laughs> and um, I unfortunately I've been really, 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 really bad about updating that thing. And um, but I do like whenever I have events and stuff, I I have a, a banner section where I kind of update the banner with like my latest shows and right. stuff like that. Um, you could also like sign up to my mailing list, and I do my best to kind of you know announce all my major products and major you know, show information when I um through that. But then you could go to my blog, which is at Luke L U K E C H U E H dot blogspot dot com and you can see some of my more updated, you know, uh newer work. And of course you could find me on Instagram, Facebook and um Twitter at Luke Chu and, you know, that's a thing. We could have gone into that too. Like I don't really. One of the reasons why I don't really update my website so much is because you don't need to. Social media is there. Right. I. Yeah. I don't. I don't ever go to websites anymore. Yeah. I don't go to other artists' websites. I go to their Instagram feeds to yeah. see what they've been working on, and um, it's kind of sad. So would be artists are now going to start tagging Luke Chu and all of their Instagrams. Well, please. <laughs> Excellent. Please well, again, Luke, thanks for coming on down. Yeah, well, thank you so much. This has I'm, been a great one. I've, I've loved that we dug into so much great stuff. I'm happy to be here, and if you uh, need me again, let me know. Shall do. So, everybody, thanks again. This has been Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy, and uh, we'll talk to you soon again. <laughs>